everybody. This is Kara, and welcome to the Sausages of Science. I am actually hosting solo today for the podcast as we are moving into the end of the semester. So both finishing up with finals and final projects and moving into the holiday season, everyone's schedules were kind of wild. So you just get me and who will be a temporary co-host for this episode, the wonderful Dr. Charles Roseman. Hey, Charles, how you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing all right. And I'm so, so excited that we have you back on the show again today. And so for those of you who haven't heard our previous episode with uh, Charles before, uh, he is an associate professor of evolution, ecology, and behavior at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He is also a longtime friend of the pod, and I'm so happy to have him back. And I'm a huge fan of his because he always pushes me to think about things in a different way and often points out the ways in which anthropology as a field needs to do better. Uh, so today, Charles and I are going to have a discussion about adaptation, what adaptation is, the various ways we have employed this term, how we can study adaptation, uh, and how we can know when something actually is an adaptation. And even better, there's going to be a visual video component to this podcast. We are going to cut that segment out of the recording, throw it up on YouTube, and include that link in the show notes uh, as we demonstrate the way different traits and how selection acts on different traits that are correlated. So Charles, welcome back and tell us what you've been up to since, oh, I don't know how long since we last had you on the show. Oh, I think it was two years ago, wasn't it? Oh my God, that long? I'm not sure. Time has no meaning anymore, really. It, it expands and contracts in ways I don't understand. Yeah, kind of depends on how fast you're going. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, I've been spending quite a bit of effort this semester uh, building a new introductory genetics class for a revamped in, uh, introduction to genetic series here at Illinois. And I'm concentrating on making it a bit more organismal, trying to place genetics in the context of actual living things. What? what? Why would you do that? Why, Why in I... the world make things in context with, with, you know, examples people understand? It does really defeat just about the entire shtick of genetics. I, I can tell you that as, as you'll find out later in this episode, <laughs> if you are still conscious after hearing the word genetics. I guess the other thing that uh, is notable is that or notable change for me, at least, is that I've started um, trying my hand at more public-facing writing, and I've had uh, very capable guidance by an expert in uh, in science outreach. So, well, that's good, and we can then highlight the fact that you and I have a commentary together in Scientific American that came out last month. So that's exciting. So, for those of you who are interested in the take Charles and I have on biological sex and the different ways in which we use it and should use it. Uh, have a look. All right. So are you ready to dive in where I quote this amazing thing that you wrote? And I'm so excited to say it out loud. For the record, you asked me to write something provocative. So did I did I actually say, Charles, write something provocative? Yes, you did. Yeah, we're gonna have to go back to uh, the record on that one. But anyway. <laughs> So when you and I had actually settled on the topic about adaptation uh, for this interview, you went and wrote, apparently, as I requested, something that you have called a provocation, uh, from which this glorious paragraph comes from. So I quote, rather than being the obvious explandum and necessary theoretical framework for human evolution, adaptation serves as the heroine and adaptationism as the needle and spoon to our junkie discipline. Heated with the flames of our imagination, lit by the sparks of perverse incentives to publish as much as we can, we keep going back for our fix. When I read this paragraph, 
I shattered into laughter and I could not get myself back together again for like a solid five minutes. So before we go into the tendency for us to dive into accepting adaptationism for every, you know, bobble and crevice on bones and beyond, let's just discuss what an adaptation is. How would you define adaptation? I, I default to uh, George Williams' definition from his book back in the 60s. He has a, several levels of stringency, um, and I, of course, will be interested in, in the most stringent definition. So we have to distinguish between a couple of different things. There's you know, a wide-ranging conversation that might be had, but let's just, let's just leave it on, at two things, and that we need to distinguish between adaptation as a feature of organisms, as a trait, mm-hmm. that's and as a process, the process by which things are adapted. And in general, people tend to think that that is natural selection, although there are other possibilities that have been floated in that respect. So Elliot Sober is a philosopher of biology, uh, sort of sharpened up um, G.C. Williams' definition, and he said that it is a, a trait, T, uh, is now an adaptation for doing X in a lineage if, and only if, T evolved in the lineage because there was selection for T, and there was selection for T because having T promoted doing X. Okay. No, you're falling asleep here. Um, well, no, uh, you're just making me want to make a cup of tea, actually, more than anything else. <laughs> I was like, shit, I need some tea right now. Go on. Well, I see so much tea that I'm kind of reminded by the uh, hate mail that I'm getting for the sex and gender bit that we wrote. Are you still getting hate mail? Uh, I got, yeah, a few nice thick packages that looked like they were full of anthrax or something like that when I first opened them. So You just went right um, ahead and snorted the powder, didn't you? Well, you know, I wanted to get out of uh, teaching the last couple of weeks of class. <laughs> Perhaps we shouldn't joke about it since I have gotten physical hate mail as well, and it's not pleasant. <laughs> but it's our way of dealing with the stress. Anyhow, go yeah. on. Tell us more about this, about T right. and X. <laughs> Adaptations are, in this case, we're interested in natural selection evolving and adaptation in this particular case. And we want to label the adaptation with a with a function. It does something. And if we're going to call something in a function in the present day, we want to identify the function that was important for mediating the relationship between whatever variation is going on in the genome and the phenotype and so on and so forth, all the way up to fitness. The variation which is is natural selection. Uh, that is the main point there. We don't want to uh, include things that are uh, we, we just find neat or keen or interesting, uh, things that strike our fancy. We want to embed it within both a natural history and in a dynamic. Mm. And the dynamic is informed by, by evolutionary theory. With the respect to the second part, it's just that evolutionary dynamic that leads to an instance of adaptation. So that's the verb sense. The first one was the noun sense. And when I say adaptationism, um, that's just the school of thought that says that adaptation is just the bee's knees and it's what we ought to be focusing on as, as, uh, as evolutionary scholars. 
Um, and uh, sort of the more arch adaptationists are quite dismissive of, of the remainder of evolutionary biology, but the less less said about them, the better. And and also that this idea that kind of everything that we see, all of the features are quote unquote adaptive for everything. And, and this is something that we see in our field a lot. And so maybe I'm gonna push you to give a few examples. So in your provocation, you state that the use of adaptationism in human evolution has been a failure. Uh, so please talk us through kind of what this adaptationist paradigm is, which I think I may have just alluded to, uh, and how it has been applied or misapplied to human evolution. And so how have we failed in our use of adaptationism? What have we been doing wrong? I don't think that we have failed as, as scholars. I, I think that adaptation has failed us and that there's a lot of hunger uh, for something different. Hmm. Uh, if you'll permit me to do a little history here. So when we go back to, say, Sherwood Washburn, who developed the idea of man the hunter. So Washburn comes along, he's a, a part of the modern synthesis and evolutionary theory, which is taking genetics and paleontology and ecology and a bunch of other stuff and sliming them all together. And uh, he's sort of the anthropological representative uh, uh, in that whole uh, affair. And he writes a series of papers defining uh, the new physical anthropology, sort of what we call biological anthropology today. And um, uh, as part of this, he writes some very cogent critiques of adaptation uh, and the way that it gets used in whole battled physical anthropology. Um, and uh, uh, has a uh, a couple very thoughtful examples of how one might go through and propose hypotheses of adaptation and falsify them. Then he drops all that and it's man the hunter, mm. <laughs> which is, as you know, much better than most people, a doozy of a story. It is absolutely everything that is wrong with adaptationism. Okay. Now, so that, that kind of sets up uh, biological anthropology, human biology, a bunch of the other human evolutionary disciplines in an adaptationist framework. And if you look at the uh, descriptions of what we do on the various websites, the various association websites, and look at the statements that they release about the definition of our, of our fields or definitions of our fields, you'll note that uh, they talk about adaptation as the one of the key things. So that kind of sets up the problem. A lot of people are kind of dissatisfied with it, and there are a few good reasons. And one it has to do with the fact that if we look at, especially paleoanthropology, and look at the human fossil record, surprises are unsurprising. So what does that mean? You know, every new uh, discovery uh, just rocks our our understanding of human evolution. It's uh, it, everything falls apart. We have to redo everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, let's set that aside. Let's say that everybody's being an honest actor in this respect, and that people are genuinely surprised. And I think a lot of people are. Uh, it's just that if we're so surprised so often, our models of evolution are probably not working terribly well mm -hmm. to predict what's going to happen. Now, there are other models of evolution that do predict the distribution of variation in human evolution pretty well for some characteristics. And those are models that aren't adaptation focused. They include other processes of evolution. Gasp, it's not just natural selection. 
<laughs> nope, not just natural <laughs> selection. Other thing to think about is that natural selection can be both obvious and inscrutable at the same time. If we take the evolution of large brains and humans over the last two million years or so, uh, whatever uh, whatever the time scale is these days, I work mostly with mice in this day and age. The, the, you know, we can sit down and we can test the hypothesis that uh, uh, the rate of evolution that we see in brains uh, size is consistent with random uh, processes. So mm. it's consistent with a neutral theory where all of the evolution is attributable to mutations being introduced in the population that don't cause differences in fitnesses. So they, they're uh, not a part of natural selection. Mm -hmm. And then, or evolution by natural selection, I should say. And uh, random genetic drift, which is just stochastic sampling. Mm -hmm. So Lauren Schroeder and Noreen von Kramen Tobedel uh, published a paper a few years back where it, believe it or not, it's not at all neutral, evolving very, very quickly. And that's nice because the neutral theory is appealing because you can write out expectations for it in ways that aren't possible with adaptationist claims. So we can tell that natural selection was working really, really hard to evolve a something, but nobody thinks it's actually brain size, except for some hmm. kind of loopy evolutionary psychologists who have some idea that, you know, the Paleolithic ladies thought dudes with big heads were were the just, you know, the cats meow and and we end up with with big brains. Setting aside the sort of the crazies, nobody thinks it's actually brain size. We think it's stuff that's correlated with brain size. So there are tons and tons of story. Language, it's a radiator for heat on the savanna. It's for outwitting your rivals when you're scoping out mates and trying to attract them, you name it. And if there's one topic that has not suffered from a dearth of adaptationist attention, it's this. Mm. And none of those exp explanations are particularly satisfactory. Mm -hmm. None of them are particularly falsifiable or even modelable. Another thing is that uh, for quite a while now, since right after Washburn came up with the, the new physical anthropology, uh, people have been hungry for alternatives. Mm -hmm. We've been looking for other things. Probably remember the cladistics craze of the, the 90s and early 2000s. And then prior to that, there was punctuated equilibrium and mm -hmm. all these things where people are talking about how evolution might be working. But what's interesting about this is that the adaptationist perspective is so deeply ingrained that even these alleged alternatives to adaptationism turn out to be expanded adaptationisms. Mm. They'll bring in things like adaptive plasticity. They'll bring in niche constructions, uh, multiple forms of inheritance, epigenetic inheritance, cultural inheritance, all that sort of thing. But all the problems thereafter are uh, posed as adaptive problems. We're adapterific because we're so plastic or something like that. This is a sense that people are worried that adaptationism is not doing it, but the, they have difficulty breaking out of that uh, that mindset. So 
a lot of approaches to adaptations and trying to figure out is kind of a form of reverse engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and so why is reverse engineering maybe not a great way to go about trying to understand if something is adaptive or not? I think this is a story of evolutionary psychology actually being a good science in one respect. I know that- I don't think I would have ever heard you say those words, ever, ever. Well, you wanted me to be provocative, so- This is true, I, this I'm is trying true. trying to shock and offend you all, so. <laughs> um, I think people have started to realize, uh, and evolutionary psychologists, uh, or many evolutionary psychologists, at least ones that I talk to on a regular basis, that the particular strategy that they use has been a failure. If you go back to the origins of evolutionary psychology, when Cosmides and the recently de uh, deceased John Tooby, this was a really good idea. I should explain the idea. So the idea here is that they made the observation that much of psychology was being conducted in terms of folk definitions of psychological traits. Uh, so uh, these folk notions of what the mind should be like. Mm. And they pointed out quite astutely, I think, that there was no good reason to believe that our psychological notions that we get from everyday experience are going to be anything more than the cultural construction du jour. What they did was they said, okay, well, natural selection's super powerful, things are adapted. If we have an understanding of the types of challenges organisms faced in the distant past, mm -hmm. then we'd be able to predict the kinds of things they would need to navigate that past, and that could serve as a template for generating hypotheses and that sort mm. of thing. And that's a great intervention. It happens to be wrong, and people are starting to realize that, but it, the science is about being wrong in interesting ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's so, how we learn and move forward. Yeah, and a lot of evolutionary psychologists realize that this is not very productive and are giving up on it. And a lot of the time you just end up with kind of these descriptions of what traits do, mm -hmm. you know, an adaptation is just saying, Oh, it does this. And, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Oh, a pigeon can fly. No kidding. Um, <laughs> part of the failure really is that a lot of the engineering parts haven't been tried mm -hmm. mostly because they're very difficult and, I'm going to use a counterexample of where this is being done. And that's your project with Libby Cogill and, and Scott Maddox on how various aspects of body form and physiology relate to climate. It's mm. climate adaptations. And what you're doing here is you have a set of clear expectations for what a good functioning system looks like mm -hmm. with respect to these features of the environment. You know, uh, as well as anyone else in the world, and there are only two other people who really know this, uh, how painful collecting these data can be. Uh-huh. Literally. <laughs> also, uh, yes, it's, uh, you have to shove things up people's noses. It's fantastic. And um, you have to sweat in a climate chamber and wipe it off before you drip on your participants. Yes. Uh, well, I, that, you would not wipe off your sweat. That hesitation right there tells me you would just openly sweat all over your participant. No, I'm one of the sweatiest human beings ever. <laughs> and I would be disqualified from... You're being... more like, I'm just happy I work with mice. <laughs> yeah, they don't really sweat. So, uh, <laughs> But this type of effort has been quite rare. And mm -hmm. you end up with a lot of things that are sort of taken for granted textbook facts in human evolution 
actually not having very solid empirical bases just because it's kind of inconvenient and hard to do. Now, there are other fields that are realizing this and there are some uh, really, there's a lot of very interesting work that's being done at the juncture of sort of phylogenetic comparative approaches on one hand and biomechanics on the other. There's kind of a more theoretical reason why it's a failure. In mm. that if you look at multicellular eukaryotes like us, the, the tree out there, like the squirrel that was chewing on the on the, the screen earlier and I had to chase off and he hasn't come back. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> we have a lot of slop in our systems. Compare our genomes to that of an archaean or bacterium. We have tons and tons of slop in the system. Mm -hmm. So the genome, when, at least when it comes to organisms like us and slime molds and whatever, um, though those, our genomes are uniquely inappropriately named in that about one or 2% of our genome are actually made up of genes. The rest is just this chaotic mess. And multicellularity itself is kind of, you know, it's more calamity than harmony. It's a, it's, it's a real mess. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for this that uh, I find, well, an explanation for this that I find particularly persuasive. And that's the organisms like us, other multicellular eukaryotes, have much lower effective numbers of individuals in the population. Mm. What that's saying is that drift, random genetic drift, chance sampling of allele frequencies within a population is a lot stronger in the bacteria than it is in organisms like us. Mm. When random genetic drift is strong, the effect of natural selection or natural selection is not as efficacious. Mm. So if you have uh, differences that are quite small, that would be evident in a bacterium mm -hmm. uh, where drift is weak, uh, it won't peak above the sort of the noise of random genetic drift in an organism like us. Mm. Okay. This places limits on the degrees to which you can uh, evolve these tight tolerances on functional performance uh, mm -hmm. by natural selection. It's just that perfection is not going to happen mm -hmm. even when you can define it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I like to think that something like this might be happening, something like this might be happening with, um, with uh, human evolution. So, mm. you know, if we're going to, and that is over the last couple of million years, if we're going to play the metaphor game, um, uh, understanding this part of our evolutionary history is probably less a matter of engineering and more a matter of urban history. Hmm. Very cool. I spent the morning watching um, Shane McGowan's uh, uh, funeral, the, the lead singer of the Pogues who recently died. You're giving me a very blank look. Um, a little bit, but I'm also like, you spent your morning watching a funeral. <laughs> that just doesn't <laughs> seem like how I want to spend my morning. <laughs> He's a very important figure in my life. I'll well, say that. then that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it's just like, no. not how I'd spend my day. And he said of London, and I think this is true of just about any interesting city, is that your architects were madmen and your builders <laughs> sing but drunk. What this means is that we're organisms like us are really only understandable as natural histories, as histories, as a series mm. of contingent events. It's not to say that natural selection isn't happening. It's just that it's not going to result in the nice, clean adaptationism 
our adaptations of our imagination. Yeah, I really like that emphasis on how messy things really are and how when things are messy versus simple, it really should change the way we approach these problems. Uh, so one thing that that comes up often is the phenotypic gambit. Mm -hmm. So what role does that play uh, in, in our current thinking and how we approach studying adaptations mm -hmm. or potential adaptations? Yeah, so the phenotypic gambit is an analytical move particularly popular among uh, sociobiologists and uh, behavioral ecologists and, uh, and, and people in, in that end of the evolutionary world. And what they do is they'll say, okay, we want to know something about the dynamics of this trait under natural selection. It's usually only under natural selection. But we don't know a whole lot about what's going on with the genetics. Mm. And the idea is to make it a minimal set of assumptions about about genetics mm -hmm. so one way to do it is to assume that the characteristic has a very simple mendelian basis mm -hmm. um, that's another way to think about it would be just to it, it's a little bit more expansive version is that there's enough heritable variation this variation that makes relatives resemble one another above and beyond what you'd expect by chance mm -hmm. um, the the idea then is that we don't have to worry about genetic correlations with other characteristics and what a genetic correlation is will become clear in a second but, mm -hmm. so basically the idea here is that nothing is interesting is going on genetically everything will work out you know all you have to do worry about is natural selection now the there's a misinterpretation of this in that that people oftentimes say that they're not assuming any one thing about variation. That's not true. They have pretty strong ontological commitments that come along with these 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 ways of looking at the world. The disposition of variation uh, may not match up with these these presuppositions. And <clears throat> a really good example, and I guess this is where we'll segue to the shiny app, is has to do with directional selection on correlated traits. Mm -hmm. so, if you have pleiotropy, uh, where you have a single part of the genome affecting two different traits, you can end up with a situation where the you know the hereditary basis for the variation in the population leads to a correlation between individuals. So one of the ways you might think about this is if you think about your height and you think about your reach, sort of spread your arms out and measure tip to tip on your fingers. The, a lot of the genes that go into permitting differences to be generated um, in, say, how growth plates work mm. to grow long bones, mm -hmm. those are those are going to affect growth plates in your long bones, uh, irrespective of whether they're in your arms or in your legs, in mm -hmm. your legs with a similar reach, uh, or your the reach will be correlated with, with height in a population. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the problem is when you have situations like that, you can actually have scenarios in which the uh, the evolutionary response to natural selection is in the opposite direction of actual directional selection on that trait. Mm -hmm. So, which makes a, something like optimization basically impossible. Oh, it makes it difficult. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not a person who says much is impossible, it's particularly dangerous to say, okay, well, I see this difference between two groups in these two different traits. 
Mm -hmm. One gets bigger, one gets smaller. And, you know, uh, or sorry, rather, both of them get bigger. And then say natural selection was acting on through both of these traits. Mm. And that could be not true at all. It could be acting on just one or pulling in different directions, any number of things. Yeah. And then you could add in all sorts of other types of selection and weird genetic effects and so on and so forth. And life gets complicated really quickly. You need to take a quantitative genetics class. But shall we? uh, Yeah. So I like I want to set this up. And so anyone listening to this, I'm sure it's kind of hard to visualize exactly what Charles is understanding. And especially if you're trying to teach this kind of thing in a course of how correlated traits are going to respond in different ways, depending on if selection is acting on one versus the other. It can be really abstract and, and hard to visualize. So Charles developed this awesome app that he calls the Shiny app. I have no idea why you called it the Shiny app, but you did. Uh, that's the platform th- for this? That's the platform. I just like the idea yeah. that it's shiny and sparkly and new. That's yeah. what I've been going with. Anyway, <laughs> surprise, surprise. And so this is where, if you are interested, you might want to actually pause the podcast and then go to the link in the show notes to the YouTube video that will have this demonstration. All right. So this is great. I I really like the fact that we can visualize this and allow people to play with it to see how these things might play out. But again, don't use this as part of your science to predict what you think might be happening in in whatever it is you are studying. This is, this is not an analytical tool. Everyone wrote this over coffee in about 30 minutes. So with the squirrel chewing on the screen at your window. Yes. Uh, Anyway. So let's, let's bring this back to the applicable and how we actually should be approaching things like adaptation in our research. How should we do it? So if you think about human biologists in particular, since this is, you know, the the Human Biology Association podcast, how in the world do we approach adaptation, uh, given the difficulty we have when we have typically small sample sizes and ethical reasons as well, where we can't necessarily get genetic information from our populations, for example? Well, you could in cases in which it's unethical, that would just be evil. So let's... uh... Let's be sure. Don't don't mm. underestimate anyone's capacity to be evil, including yourself. I would say don't approach adaptation. Okay. Unpack approach. that, Charles. <laughs> so approach questions with appropriate theory. Mm. And you may have a question about mechanism uh, and mechanism alone in one or more conditions. Just kind of want to know how something's going to work. Mm. And that may not be an evolutionary question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have have questions that are about variation that are kind of mechanistically agnostic and are amenable to some kind of a variational evolutionary approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, not everything we're going to do needs to be forced into a kind of evolutionary rubric, especially mm-hmm. if it doesn't fit. And what, what's going on there is that you're kind of ad, evolution becomes decorative. Mm-hmm. A decorative feature of the analysis. You just sort of use evolutionary language. Mm-hmm. And this uh, brings with it quite a lot of extra baggage that you probably don't want contaminating what you're doing. So. Okay. So then when do you think it is appropriate for human biologists who study mechanisms and relationships and cause mm-hmm. and effect in certain ways, when is it appropriate for us to start employing evolutionary language and trying to address the evolutionary forces? So this is the bad news part of the presentation? Or bad news part it wasn't the, the fact that we're talking about quantitative genetics? 
I don't view that as bad. Um, <laughs> does make other people have boredom induced strokes. So <laughs> take breaks from the podcast as you might need. <laughs> the bad news is that you have to deal with population genetics, quantitative mm -hmm. genetics, evolutionary genetics, period. If you mm -hmm. want to do evolution on the timescales we're talking about, mm -hmm. where we're interested in, say, how human develop, uh, variation has, has arisen, how human unique, uniquely human characteristics have evolved, all that sort of thing. And uh, so I'm just going to play a little fast and loose with terminology. I'm just going to say population genetics. Mm -hmm. You know, it, population genetics is kind of like the toad style kung fu of of evolutionary theory it, it's immensely powerful and if used mm -hmm. properly it's it's almost invincible very nearly all the theory and technique that you will be able to use mm -hmm. to connect your theory and your questions with the data through appropriate methods mm -hmm. comes out of population genetics Okay. So, and I'd go so far as that if you don't have population genetics, it's not evolution, period. Hmm. Um, I'm sure we'll get some, uh, well, I kind of hope we get some comments about that. I, I'd be well, curious to see who's like, no. Uh, yeah. Interesting. You know, okay. So let's say you're interested in some of these alternatives, right? Hmm. Uh, um, evolutionary developmental biology gets floated as an alternative to hmm. adaptation some sometime. Well, if you don't pay attention to the population genetics work of people like Schmalhausen and Waddington, Chevrolet, Ashley Hall, Rice, so on and so forth. You, you are on shit Creek and you have no paddle. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's say you're interested in the extended evolutionary synthesis. Okay. And you didn't think I was going to bring it up, but I, I am. You have to, I know you do. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you're going to need popu population genetics. Mm. So uh, plasticity. Population genetics. Population genetics. You need the population genetics to understand plasticity. Niche construction. Population genetics. genetics. <laughs> Inheritances. Guess what? I see a t-shirt. Population genetics. Sorry. I see a t-shirt uh, forming here or a mug or something. Yeah. Uh, like it's all population genetics. You can't yeah. have evolution without it, which, yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And I think, I think that's a very important lesson, especially I think both mm -hmm. for graduate students listening to this, but also mm -hmm. people who review grants and just kind of expect mm -hmm. human biologists to put an evolutionary bent on the mm -hmm. work that they are proposing to do, that maybe we should not have that expectation um, and be a little bit more understanding that that is often shoehorned in because we feel like we have to, not because we actually can do it. Yeah. You don't want your science turning into sort of the secular apologetics, you know, that's mm -hmm. I just, I'm going back to, yes. to, to religious anyway. Um, so mm -hmm. now I want to have a slight conversation just about words and the word adaptation. It gets tossed mm -hmm. around a lot uh, in mm -hmm. a variety of fields, both within evolutionary biology, anthropology, psychology, everywhere, um, even exercise physiology. And the meanings are different depending on the field you're in. So for example, exercise physiology, you talk about you know, adaptation to an exercise program. And that's often mm -hmm. not how we use adaptation within an anthropological sense or beyond. So mm -hmm. when can and should we confidently use the word adaptation? And should we perhaps consider different words or different explanations when that word fails? Yeah, 
So I'll go back to a point that I made a little earlier. And if you want to know how something evolved, figure out how it evolved. What? <laughs> so as I said, if you know the order of mm. events and you have a good sense of which processes were acting when, you mm -hmm. know, that natural selection prevailed here and then random genetic drift prevailed here, so on and so forth, uh, you end up with uh, uh, a very solid scientific account of a natural historical mm. series of events, a, a trajectory, that's a bad word. And at that point, do you really need to say everything's, uh, everything you've labeled has mm -hmm. happened and driven to some optimum or nearly so by natural selection mm -hmm. and, and adaptation. Yeah. No, I, I agree. So in, in if I can summarize what I think you're saying is, is that we don't really need to use this word when, when we describe organisms or we describe traits and we describe variation. There doesn't really seem to be a need to push adaptation as an explanation for any of this. Yeah. What I would say is that Darwin in the origin didn't solve the adaptation problem. He dissolved it. <laughs> That's you a know. really nice way of putting it. You know, he, it, it's really kind of no longer a problem. It's not something mm -hmm. that requires special explanation. We have a good physical, biological, statistical theory mm -hmm. to explain how this might happen. Okay. Now, filling out the details is kind of difficult. Mm -hmm. you know that's life and science is full of setbacks and tears and gnashing of teeth and, and sweat that. a lot of sweat um so what do you hope people especially considering this is a human biology mm -hmm. audience for the most part what do you hope they gain from listening to this podcast and this conversation well uh i would say that one of the things that i'd like people to carry away is that that life in organisms like us is pretty messy mm. and awfully chancy. One way to think about this is to say, well, if language and the ability to hold podcasts where we talk about how adapterific we are, you know, and all these other characteristics, if those are so interesting and so, uh, so generally adaptive, why aren't they all over the place? Mm-hmm. You take the, the camera eye, uh, that's evolved twice. Mm -hmm. So invertebrates and, 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 and cephalopod mollusks. So you end up with a, uh, you know, if you point to the eyes of every single critter uh, uh, with the camera eye as, as being this evidence for, uh, for the wonders of adaptation, uh, you're not really pointing at every single critter around today and in the past that's had eyes mm. put two instances mm -hmm. and it's not that hard to evolve theoretically speaking so why mm -hmm. doesn't it evolve more often mm. a lot of our questions i think that are are fundamentally misdirected by adaptation and this is something that you as an athlete know about is that when you're not terribly good at something mm. Um, sometimes you default on the things you are good at mm -hmm. and, uh, one of the best ways to get better at other, other things is to stop doing the thing you're good at. Mm -hmm. Do the thing you hate Yes, the most. Yep. So 
can you can you do without adaptation? Can you describe your problem without using the A word in that sense? And give that a try. That's what I'd like people mm. to walk away with. Okay. And part of this is that it forces you to be a bit more formal about how you're describing your theory. Mm-hmm. And also it forces you to be quite specific about what you're talking about. Mm. This is kind of important, especially in an anthropological context where, um, you know, anthropologists talk of complexity and nuance is basically catnip to Mm -hmm. anthropologists. You can go back to the heroin analogy from earlier, if you like. I I like to mix up my drugs. (laughs) Catnip in particular, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know... just because there's a lot of something, mm-hmm. a lot of things going on, that doesn't mean that it's complex. Mm. And, and that's one of the unfortunate things about anthropology and social anthropologists are particularly guilty of this. Uh, so we'll blame them. Uh, is that you know they're uh, if you go up and you and you sing the virtues of complexity and uh, do it in a nuanced way, it's catnip, and mm. all of a sudden they're purring and rolling around on the floor, blitzed out of their gourds. So that's that's a problem. <laughs> can't deal with these. Can't deal with these comparisons. All right, no, I think that's that's all fair. I think it's fair, and I think you've put forth a challenge and a really important challenge for people to keep in mind about the ways in which we talk about this, and mm-hmm. the ways in which we highlight the things that we study. Because I, I think part of it is also people wanting what they see to be more than Mm -hmm. what it actually is. And often what we already see is pretty awesome to begin with. And we don't need to make it more than what it already is. Uh, We don't need to assign it a a quote unquote adaptation. And so as we start wrapping things up, I was going to ask you what you're up to, but now I kind of just want to hear the squirrel story. So (laughs) (laughs) you can either tell me what fun science things you're doing, or you can tell me the squirrel story. So yeah, the longer story was that um, uh, obviously weren't able to smoke indoors in university buildings within recent memory, not quite living memory, but recent memory. So people would go out and hang out on the stoops and mm-hmm. they would dispose of their cigarettes either courteously or in, in various receptacles that were around. And mm. the, the squirrels figured out that they could get high by getting the cigarette butts and chewing on them. And then when they took away all the receptacles and, and nobody was allowed to smoke on on any campus grounds, mm-hmm. like walk to the edge of campus to do yeah. Um you uh the the squirrels were not getting their fix and became incredibly hostile for but just strung out years. squirrels <laughs> so what were they doing what kind of hostile behavior did you witness um they were getting in people's faces i don't think anybody got bitten but as far as you they know were stealing stuff from people more aggressively than they would have they got really bold and they were certainly much more vocal than they were. Shittering <laughs> at you all the time. So yeah. out of curiosity, did you notice, and maybe you didn't, like were squirrels starting to migrate towards campus edges to get their fix where people could smoke? I have no idea. I, I... Missed opportunity, Charles. This is unacceptable. The look oh. you're giving me. <laughs> if people could see the look you just gave me of like, God 
damn it, Akabak. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, then to end, we always like ending on a fun question, although the squirrel story is pretty great. So I know you're not a member of the Human Biology Association, but you should come and join us sometime. But people, we're, we're, we're trying to get them to bring back the talent show, which used to exist at previous meetings before. If there were a talent show, Charles, what talent would you present? Um, I can clear a room faster than anyone you've ever met. <laughs> um, talent show over. You are winner by default. <laughs> no, other than dirty limericks and certain kinds of uh, certain types of recipes. I'm, I'm not very talented. I could do the... Uh, do a sampler of that shiitake mushroom butter and mint thing that I, I no I wouldn't allow it because I would have to share with other people and I don't like sharing that mushroom dish that you make with other people yeah it's it, <laughs> it, it's simple and it's divine and I'm very proud to say it's of my own invention so. it's so good so good people I, I don't even want to say that we'll include the recipe in the show notes because no this should not be spread around the world it needs to be kept a secret I'm not willing to share this. <laughs> I refuse. Anyway, Charles, as always, it is incredibly illuminating to talk with you and think through some of these really important issues that, yeah, they've been kind of lying under the surface within the field for a while, and we want to bring it bubbling up so we can actually start addressing this in an intelligent way that doesn't take away from the work that we're doing. So thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure.